Episode number 17 of the Media Narrative Podcast, a show featuring media makers, their stories, and their process. I'm Rob Hoschild. Your life is an incredible thing, you know, and it's just filled with experiences and colors and people and and feelings, you know, and it, it's just we're really, really lucky. When people say they're bored, I just cannot understand what they're talking about, and I think they're lying. Today, we'll sit down with Rick Berlin, songwriter, pianist, author, music festival co-organizer, and a man so dedicated to the community he lives in, and the same one, by the way, in which I reside, Jamaica Plain, Massachusetts, that many people here think of him as the unofficial mayor of this section of Boston. Of course, being the rebellious sort that he is, he doesn't really see it that way. In a moment, I'll ask Rick Berlin how his music career evolved after getting dropped by a major label in the 70s. I'll ask him to compare his process for writing songs to writing his fascinating memoir, The Paragraphs. And he'll explain how he and his collaborators run a large music festival. Rick Berlin, thank you so much for taking some time for a conversation today. Uh, we're here in your kitchen, so thank you for hosting me. I'm going to start out by reading for everyone's benefit who might not know your background as a musician, something that Ted Drozdowski wrote for the now defunct Boston Phoenix. I don't know when he wrote this. Do you know when he wrote this thing? I'm about to read? A while back. A while back. So here's what uh, Ted had to say about my guest. Rick Berlin is a giant on the Boston music scene. His colorful songwriting and strong stage presence have influenced countless other artists since the early 1970s when his innovative band orchestra Luna harnessed a potent blend of theater and music years before the tubes. Throughout the decades and the shifting fortunes of the business, Rick has continued to make music with intelligence and integrity, building an international reputation around his naughty singular piano playing straight from the heart singing and a style of character-based songwriting that's drawn favorable comparisons to the likes of Tom Waits and Leonard Cohen, two of my favorites, although Rick rocks more than both. So uh, it's a great description. I couldn't say it any better. I agree with everything you said. Um, and it is on your book, so you must agree with it too, right? I like Ted a lot, and I really think he um, takes care and time when he writes about somebody. Absolutely. You know? So um, we're going to talk about the music Uh, in this conversation, but I also wanted to mention that in addition to your prodigious output as a musician, (laughs) it's true. How many CDs have you put out there? Well, I have no idea, but I think um, my latest band, which is eight years old, Nickel and Dime Band, we're starting our fifth in eight years, so it's, we're productive. It seems like between all the bands, you must be around a couple dozen or something like that. Yeah, I mean, I think I've recorded uh, records that haven't been released, and I've recorded a lot of demos, Mm -hmm. and... um, I'm busy. Yeah. Well, speaking of how busy you are, you do a lot besides music, which is part of the reason why I wanted to chat. Uh, You've written this incredibly honest, revealing, and funny memoir. Thanks. Seriously, it was so much fun to read. I just read it. Um, Plus, you've written a musical. Uh, You have founded a massive music festival here in Jamaica Plain, Mass. With other people. With other people. Many other wonderful, you know, responsible, talented, bright friends. Right. Uh, I did not mean to sell them short in any way. I just have to be careful because I think there's a misunderstanding. I get, actually, Seamus and I get more credit for this thing than uh, we deserve. It's Mm -hmm. really 
all of our festival. That's how I feel about it. The volunteers are phenomenal on mm-hmm. that day. And then the crowd is kind of their own performance in a way. The kids running around. Yeah. And then it's really, and the band. So, sure, I mean, maybe the light bulb started early on with myself and Seamus, but it's it's blown up in a really wonderful way. It really has. I was there this year. It was so much fun. Yeah, and I thanks. definitely want to talk about that uh, some more as we move forward. You also started working on a documentary about this village of Jamaica Plain that we both live in. Uh, and speaking of Jamaica Plain, that which is going to be a part of this conversation, you've been working at one of Boston's best down-home bar restaurants, Doyle's, mm-hmm. um, and you're just kind of seen as the unofficial mayor, in a way, of Jamaica Plain. <laughs> I would dispute that, too. All right, right? That's well, an, it's an, I hear that, but... It, and you don't have to run or it's, anything. It's, it's just... nice, <laughs> but I think I'm more like the Secretary of Interior Decoration <laughs> or something. I don't know. I mean, everybody knows... So many people here. It's it's, we're all, you know, at the podium. So your book, I really enjoyed it. It's called The Paragraphs. It's about much more than your music career. In fact, the music chapter is one of the shorter chapters uh, in this book, although music comes mm-hmm. up all over the place. Uh, just curious, how long did you work on this book and what was your process for writing it and then leading to publishing it? Well, um, it was unintentional. I've been writing for years, more as a uh, way of remembering things that happened to me and as a practice for lyrics so that lyrics come out more quickly when I need them for songs. Just so that, and I, I write and then read it back out loud to see if it sounds colloquial enough. And I try to write with as much visual imagery as possible unless these are my thoughts about things. You know, I, at least I go for that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I posted a bunch of them up on Facebook. I mean, my friend Ferris said, I've already read your book before. <laughs> but I think um, a friend of mine, Mindy uh, Freed, who does the Porch Fest and has published her own book, sat me down at Ula's and said, Rick, you need to publish a book. Porch Fest, by the way, is another music festival here in JP yeah, awesome. and other places. Yep. So she told you to she did. get it together. And so my friend Nick, who's done a lot of our record covers, had also done all of the interior and design work on another book. He said, Rick, I'd love to work on this. I tell you what we'll do. We'll do it through Amazon. That way you won't have to have inventory you don't get rid of. So we, he set it up initially with a cover, and um, I said, I need to be able to promote this thing somehow, and I have no clue how to do it. And Seamus and I did a TEDx talk at a church, and the woman went before us was Kate Late, who owns JP Paper Cuts. And her topic was, reading is dangerous, I thought it was really cool. Mm. So I was at the uh, animal clinic in JP on Green Street, and across the street is Paper Cuts JP. It's a tiny little independent bookstore. It it's, reminds me of... Um, mm, it's just a quaintest, wonderful little place. It is a great place. It's, oh, it, it's, a, it's a small bookstore. They actually expanded recently to a second room it is. where they have some other non-book items. But it is a tremendous book. Kate and Kate do a tremendous job of sort of stocking that with great they books, really too, do. with limited space. It's friendly. It's kind of like um, Harry Potter in there or something. <laughs> but, so I went in there, and Katie was there, and um, they had taken one sample of my work to publish in a uh, release of mul- many, many writers. And it was the one thing, it was sardines and uh, about being on an airplane. And 
They said it was the most remarked upon piece. And I said, well, could you know anybody that could help me promote this? And she said, well, I don't know, but I could. I said, well, you need to read the damn thing. So I gave her the book. And in a week, she called me back and said, Kate and I want to publish it as our first book. So uh, we worked on it a little bit. She said, I don't want to change your voice. I don't want to mess with punctuation that you opt for. I'm not sure of the cover. I'm not sure of this, that, and the other thing. So it was a lot of back and forth. The cover is a painting by my friend Gila Farzad, and I have it in my little room up here. It's mm-hmm. the one painting she did that she hates, so I wound <laughs> up with it. But anyway, out it came, and um, Joan R. Anderman wrote about it in the Globe, and as a result, more more people. I think it sold like 800, something mm-hmm. like that. It's not a um, flying off the shelves, but I've seen pictures friends have taken of people reading it on the subway and stuff. So it pleases me that it worked. I think it does. It was really uh, fun. And like I said before, it was very honest. I've read a lot of memoirs (laughs) and uh, um, I've been working on one of my own actually. And how, to the degree to which you are honest and revealing and say the stuff that a lot of people would never say to anybody, (laughs) their best friends, let alone uh, put it in a book and put it out into the world for anybody to read. I I, I was really impressed with that. So with that in mind, I would like you to read um, one short bit from this. Is that okay? On um, 162, this section right here. Just in reaction to your last comment, um, what I say usually is that if if your work doesn't embarrass you, you probably shouldn't be doing it, you know? Mm. And then my friend Patricia uh, Brown said... You say the things that I can't even say to myself when I'm driving alone in my car, (laughs) which I really like. Exactly. Well said. Is the grass really greener, redux, or are we honestly just fine in our own skin? Would we, if we could, be anyone other than who we already are? To have the flash money of a Wall Street tycoon, the endless sexual opportunities of a rock star, the way-too-beautiful boy who draws moths to his preposterous flame, the leggy body of the model who walks the runway like a fuck-you bitch, the outsized athleticism of the Olympic swimmer, the impossible leap of a dancer, the oceanic saxophone voice of a black blues singer, or the power to move people as poet, novelist, painter, filmmaker... We lie in bed heavy with the weight of not of the not done, the all we may never be, the relationships that are missing or too much with us, the families that drive us crazy, the cars that won't start, the jobs that don't pay enough for the shit we take, the books we never write, the plays we're not in, and the races we're too scared to run. We are charged so many debits and collect so few credits, but honest to God, We like who we are, don't we? We like our name, our silly astrological sign, our dysfunctional families, our besotted friends, and our peculiar failures. The face that ain't getting any younger is still the face that we quietly, reluctantly love. And the way our eyes in the mirror cannot lie, the blur we see in the window as we imagine a younger, hotter self is a soft joke, amusing, familiar, and oddly cool, So when you get right down to it, we wouldn't ever want to be anyone other than who we are, right? The grass looks greener, but it ain't. It's burnt. We own our own Dharma path. No one else does. Why would we trade that in for the unknown other? We can't, and we wouldn't. Our soul is not for sale. 
All right, Rick Berlin, thank you so much for that. Uh, there's a, some really nice turns of phrase in there, like that oceanic saxophone <laughs> voice and uh, a few others. Um, and also just, like I say, the honesty and of this idea that even though everyone goes through this thing where they want some other life sometimes or they wish things were different, would we really want to be anybody else? It's a really interesting existential question that you tease out in a really eloquent and concise way. Thanks. So I'm I've forgotten that one. It's good. Uh, so I'm wondering, how did, did that just kind of spill out of you when, when something came out? Was there some editing involved to get it to where you wanted to I be? I edit, edit the shit out of stuff. Yep. You know, I mean, I, getting it on the stove is really fun, but the really fun part is the editing, clarifying mm. it, shrinking it down, not using the same adjective. I think um, where the ideas come from, I have no no clue. I mean, I just sit down there, it's blank, and something starts, mm-hmm. you know. And um, I haven't done much since. I mean, I think that's sort of a done deal, that book. But um, I remember back when I was starting Orchestra Luna, um, I just said I had an actual typewriter. The snap, snap is so awesome. And, right. uh, and, my, and I used um, drawing paper. And it was just really fun to see those things go up on the page. And I'd just sit there and i think, well, I will write about this. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think Jean Genet said that um, when he was in prison, he would never be bored because he could write about just one day in his life and it would take years. Mm-hmm. You know? And so I realized there, you know, it may not have no, any interest to anybody else, <laughs> but your life is an incredible thing. You know? And it's just filled with experiences and colors and people and and feelings, you know, and it, it's just we're really, really lucky. When people say they're bored, I just cannot understand what they're talking about, and I think they're lying, you know. Yeah, yeah I agree with you. It's true. I mean, life is sort of endlessly interesting if you have your eyes and your ears open. Um, you know, I mean, the thing is, I think a lot of in this would appeal to a lot of different people because, you know, you're a musician who's rubbed shoulders with a lot of really famous people in your life. There's things like wrestling with Richard Gere and, uh, you know, playing with uh, playing at the same party as Patti Smith for uh, whose birthday was it? Uh, mentioned uh, Zappa's. Yeah, it's Frank Zappa. So, but you don't choose to write long vignettes about those things. But I don't care about that stuff. I don't, you know, those, I don't know those people. I mean, I, yeah. I knew them, but I don't did I mean they don't know me right. but I did meet a lot of you know name dropped uh, possibilities but it's really your friends I mean that's how I started writing yeah. songs when I met people who were my friends who wrote songs mm-hmm. you know I mean I think it all starts small and it, hopefully it stays small to some extent you know mine has <laughs> <laughs> well so yeah Ed, uh, in terms of the songs what sorts of connections do you see between your normal songwriting process and writing something like this? Is there a connection? Did it feel completely different? Uh, it's interesting. I'd say um, whenever you, you stir up the water and the dust comes up, whether it's you know a thought walking down the street or a chord that you hit when you, by accident on the piano or uh, whatever, a conversation, it starts something. It's what is it? Nick Cave said there's a song coming down the street every day. If you don't go out and shake its hand, someone yeah. else will. Just love that. So I do this thing called Songs with Subtitles, in which I read a paragraph and then I play a song that, in my mind, relates to it. And I uh, videotaped with four cameras in a black box theater that event. It was very trying, I think, for the audience. But they stayed with me, and it was one of those few times when you're in the zone 
as a performer, you kind of vanish and this thing happens. And um, I really felt, I feel like just reading from the book or just playing songs by myself, it, both of those things improve when they're together in one thing, mm. in my mind. And um, I really loved um, Swimming to Cambodia, that documentary. Mm-hmm. He just reads. Spalding Gray. Yeah, just amazing. And then I, I saw glimpses of what Springsteen did on Broadway when he would kind of talk and then play and talk and play. Mm-hmm. Similar to that. I mean, <laughs> I'm not in either of those stratospheres, <laughs> but, but I, I think they, um, a lot of my songs are portraiture. You know, mm-hmm. they're not first person songs, or if they are, it's kind of I'm faking it. Right. And, um, and, and that's also true of the paragraphs. You grew up near Philadelphia, as did I. I think we, we, oh, no we, we discovered this one day when I was at Doyle's and I was wearing a Sixers hat watching huh. the Sixers. And you're from Wayne? Wayne. You grew up in Wayne, so it's like same same county in the, in the suburbs of Philadelphia. Oh, shit. Um, you went to Yale undergrad and then graduate school there for drama. And you got scholarships to go to uh, Ridiculous. grad school. But then you didn't finish. You decided to do something else. I wonder if you could talk about why that didn't work out for you and then how all that eventually led to you forming Orchestra Luna, your first band in the early 70s? That's a good question. I, um, I really liked New Haven, and I liked the Yale buildings. During my senior year, I started dropping acid pretty intentionally. You know, and I would, That's when I really evolved as a piano player. I'm not a good one, but I would lock myself in a tower at Yale where there'd be a piano, and I'd drop acid, and I would just play. And shut my eyes, and it was basically cinematography, and my hands were responding in my mind. And, um, and then it was the Vietnam War, and uh, so I got a teaching deferment. I got two jobs as a teacher. I was not good at it, but it, it, it plunged me into some interesting situations. You can imagine. One in Connecticut and one in Colorado. And in Colorado, I um, was in Oklahoma. I was played Curly, and it was so much fun. And I thought, well, I'm going to go to drama school now. So, because I didn't know what the fuck I was going to do. And um, by the way, all of my classmates were, went to Vietnam but me, mm. which is wild. But anyway. And why didn't you go to Vietnam? Um, well, I got a 4F for being homicidal and suicidal. I thought both would be useful in the armed services, but they let me go, and I was tripping then while I got my physical. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and when I got back to the school where I had just been fired from, two buildings were on fire. <laughs> the kids had lit them on fire. Holy moly. <laughs> what year was this? Oh, God, 69. Wow. So anyway, I took an acting class in Philly, and then I decided, well, I'm going oh, to apply to Yale. I'm going back to Yale. I've got a really good drama school. Famous people come out of there. I should, I should do this. So um, R.D. Lang wrote this thing, and there was a section called The Bird of Paradise. So I memorized it and performed that, and I got in on a full scholarship. But this was after I'd gotten a full scholarship at the architecture school at Yale and turned it down because I worked for an architect in Philadelphia, Vincent Kling, and I hated it. I just... I mean, I think there's a... 18 geniuses that are architects and all the rest are just hacks that have to listen to what their employer tells them. So I was at the school and um, at the drama school and I really, I was enjoying it, but they say that you need to practice your instrument all the time and your instrument is your body 
and your face and your feelings. And so I would visit friends and they say, what is going on with your face? You know what I mean? <laughs> Who are you? And I started feeling really fake. And, um, and then uh, the head of the school, when I quit, I quit because I felt that the black kids in my class were being unfairly treated. I think it's bullshit that they, they probably weren't, but that was my feeling. And um, he said, well, you'll be repeating yourself for the rest of your life, as in I would not be a good chameleon performer. And I said, okay, but, it, but this drug dealer friend of mine was going to make a movie at Grenada West Indies. And I said, well, hell, I'll do that. And so myself and two friends of mine went, were flown to Grenada, and that was where I played the piano with other musicians playing with me, and I'd never experienced anything like that. And when we got... We were put in jail for a couple of days. When we flown back, we set up a house in Western Mass to put a band together, mm-hmm. which burned to the ground. Oh, man, another one. I <laughs> the fire starter <laughs> thing. But anyway, um, I've moved to Boston from New Haven, and I had a job working for delinquent kids. And after six months of... It was very hard, hard job. I saved enough money to get a piano, lifted up to our third floor apartment in Somerville. And some guy was walking by the window, heard me playing and said, would you like to form a band? And I said, sure. I said, well, we'd like to, I'd like to manage you with a friend of mine. And Orchestra Luna was signed in six months. Wow. And I thought... This is ridiculously easy. <laughs> yeah. Little but, did I know. Yeah, the things turned out otherwise. So that was 72, 73? Yeah. Okay. We were called Epic 74 per- Mistake. That's when the record came out. Oh, so the record did come out on yeah, Epic? Yeah, it did. Okay. Yep. Um, and, uh, but then things didn't really work out with Epic in the end. Well, the guy who signed us was let go at Epic. Mm-hmm. That's where we did the Frank Zappa thing. And Frank came up and hugged our guitar player, picked him up off the ground. It's just awesome. Yeah. And uh, what's the name of that guitar player? Randy Roos, who he teaches at Berkeley. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. He's an amazing Ama- musician. Fantastic. Yeah. Artist. Yeah. That band has a terrific sound, as does Berlin Airlift, which was the band you put together, I guess, a few years yeah, later. Yeah. Yeah. 80s. You stayed in Boston and then, sort of, after Orchestra Luna sort of rode off into the sunset, such as it is, you, you put together this band a, f- a few years later, and that was. Boston musicians as well, Boston bass band. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, Orchestra Luna was a let's have a band kind of innocence. After we lost the epic deal, I thought, well, let's do it again. And so my sister left the band, who is the mom of Sam, my nephew, plays with this band, which mm-hmm. is full circle, whatever. So we put together a more professional version of it. Mm-hmm. We played Alice Tully Hall and... Carla DeVito was in that band, and so she got she joined the Meatloaf tour because Meatloaf was a friend of ours through other connections, whatever. And so then uh, uh, that band broke down, and I thought, well, let's just do a really musical band. So we did this sort of prog rock thing. Mm-hmm. It was called Luna. And then um, somebody said, you need to write hits. So I tried to write what I thought would be hits, and those that became... We asked Jane, who was in another band, of doing all her music, if she would play on the demo, which was Over the Hill. And so she joined us, and that record went out again on CBS, and um, basically fell through the roof. But we got that was back when BCN would play local music cassette tapes mm-hmm. in drive time. That's the big rock station that was in town and exactly. is no more, but yeah, WBCN. Yep. And they were incredibly supportive of all 
music. And as a result, you'd play in a room and everyone would know your songs and it would fill up. Mm-hmm. It was fucking awesome. I mean, <laughs> I'm not saying it was better then, but I think it was, uh, you had a better shot then, mm-hmm. you know. And Berlin Airlift had a little bit of a prog rock-ish sound at There's times, some of that, too, yeah, right? it evolved into that more. I mean, I've just been incredibly lucky to have great players in my bands, all of my bands, mm-hmm. that can translate my silly ideas <laughs> on their own. I mean, I don't know what they would say about how much I conduct, because I don't really. I think, I think you can't make a player be someone they're not. They have to automatically, mostly, intuitively play the right shit. Mm-hmm. So, um, so Berlin Airlift put out two records, and um, the first was on uh, Handshake, uh, and that yeah just disappeared, you know, and lost money. And I'm not fond of the record. I was fond of the band more mm-hmm. than the record. Mm-hmm. And then we did our own record, Professionally Damaged, based on the fact that we lost the deal. We were hoping to get signed by. Um, Cleveland International, who was the meatloaf label, and they really, really, really liked us, but said, you got to get rid of these guys that are doing your demos. And it, they wanted $100,000, our guys did, so they said, forget about it until you get rid of them. It took us seven years to get rid of them. You know, it's all this fucking oh, stupid wow. stick. So the second record was the one that Hunger Strikes was right. on. Right, and so. that was a really long song that BCN tried to edit, but didn't. Mm. And they played it constantly. And um, it was kind of based on the Irish hunger strikers. And also it was about, you know, the sneaky passion you feel when you meet up with someone anonymously at night. And also um, it had a really cool conclusion musically. Hmm. And uh, and it really evolved um, in rehearsal in a really cool way. Great, so let's listen to a little bit of that. At some point, did you consciously make a decision to forget completely about big music industry success and say to yourself, this is what I want my career to look like, I'm going to be in Boston? Or did you, like in that period, Berlin Airlift and after, were you still striving for that major label deal and rock stardom of some kind? Um, You know, I've played in front of, my bands have played in front of really big crowds and we own them almost immediately and they don't know our songs. Yeah. So I know we're capable of... uh, succeeding that way but um i think after the berlin airlift thing i kind of uh maybe it was further down the road i I lost the innocence that i felt when i began to write songs for nobody way back in new haven you know in a big house full of crazy people and and so a friend of mine um eddie de sion asked me to look after his tarantula while he was in Europe. Sure. And there was a piano there. I mean, he'd asked me to play one of my songs for him, and I couldn't. I didn't know how. I'd forgotten how to play. Mm, So um, I wrote 
Uh, this song, Don't Talk About Joan, about Joan as policewoman, Joan Wasser. She's a phenomenal P Picasso of music. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Whatever. So I realized I could do this again. It became really innocent. And that's when I started playing at Jacques on Monday night. And I played there solo for 10 years. And that's all I did. It was the only place I would play. And a lot of wonderful and a lot of not so good performers play, but I never asked, I never auditioned them. I just said, come play, you know? Wow. And um, so we did live at Jacques there, and that was, other people played with me on that thing, but I really felt that I was the spark that started all, you can, you can lose that thing, you can dim when you get obsessed with your success or lack of it or whatever bothers you, whatever drama is going on within any organization. And so it kind of all came back, and um, in a in a way that really felt um, exhilarating and fun mm. and absurd. And I would keep writing all the time because I needed something new to play at Shocks, mm. and I'd have to practice. If I don't practice, I forget the songs, and even then, I forget the songs. I mean, my friends in the band, especially Ricky and Sam, say, "No, you know, these are the words. You should be over with these, you know." And I screw it up, but whatever. Um, and then I thought I was done having bands until um, I saw Nickel and Dime as a live karaoke band play outside Bella Luna right here on Center Street. And I thought, holy shit, those guys are, are wonderful. Maybe they'll learn a couple of my songs. Mm -hmm. And so we had some rehearsals and, and they did. And we've, we've made together eight years, which is, I think I'm running this, the gamut here, but it's been with give or take a drummer or a bass player, it's been the same group. Mm -hmm. And it's, we have a really good time and nobody expects to be paid. We don't. <laughs> and nobody expects fame and fortune. Although Ricky, we played at Frogmore the other night and Ricky said, I think we're going to be discovered tonight. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. I like the optimism. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we're, I mean, we'll do, we do it, but there's a lot of children in the band, so it's hard to leave town, you know? Right. Well, so for... For people who are hearing this and they're from out of town, do come to Boston or Jamaica Plain and hear because hear this band, hear this man's band because it's really good. Rick Berlin moved to Jamaica Plain, Mass. about 40 years ago, and he loves the place because of the non-uniformity of both the buildings and the people. He also works at one of its best-known restaurant bars, Doyle's, and between his labor there and his massive presence on the music scene, it just makes sense that he and others would launch a large music festival here. I asked Berlin what makes it a great event and how he and the festival committee pull it off every year. Well, we're lucky in that, I mean, every band on that stage has to have one member that lives or works in JP. Mm -hmm. it's, it's a nod to JP that there are so many to choose from that are, are that good. Mm -hmm. We had 86 bands apply this year for 21 slots. Wow. That's number one. Number two, you have to have a group of people that you can rely on that get the work done. So everybody in our committee has a specific skill that the others don't have, mm -hmm. and they, they nail it 150%, each single, every one of them. Margie, Seamus, Ferris, Charlie, and Justin, each in their own way. I mean, Justin came up with that incredible albino squirrel logo, which just says it right there, yeah. you know? And Seamus um, knows how to deal with the city. He gets all those damn permits. He, you know, he's tireless with it. He's made a lot of friends at City Hall. Mm. And uh, he's, he's sharp as a tack and doesn't suffer fools, you know? 
And then um, I would say the design of it is special. It's two stages. This is where the money goes. And so while one band plays, the other gets ready so it's seamless. And, and they're short sets, but it packs a really strong force. And it's amazing how powerful 20, 18 to 20 minutes can be from one band to really send it out there to people may have never heard you. And, um, and so that's another reason. And then we get tremendous support sponsorship support from small businesses here in JP, no corporate stuff. And then uh, the city gave us this incredible place to put it on up here at Pine Bank. We were thinking someplace on Lamartine where they would have shut us down from volume immediately, mm -hmm. you know? And um, Paul McCaffrey, who was in charge of, of all these events and stuff, or at least locating them and getting us the permits, said, no, Pine Bank, we didn't know where that was. We went out and figured out it was up here, you know, above the Sugar Bowl. And, um, and so that's also beautiful. And then there's the Rangers. They make sure everything's cool. And then um, it's, you know, I really, I always say this. I just love the first one. Everything was screwed up. Nothing worked. Some of the lines of the mics were plugged in inaccurately. And it was a smaller crowd. And a lot of our plans went awry. And we've gotten much better. I mean, we used to meet every Sunday for nine months. Wow. Now we meet seven or eight times in a nine-month period starting in January. So, and there's also up on the Jamaica Plain Music Festival website a how to make your own music, mm -hmm. music festival. And there's a, it's, you just have to um, be fortunate to have good people to work with. Mm -hmm. And we are so fortunate. And then the volunteers are just phenomenal. And then so is the crowd. It's a day yeah. that you forget the bullshit in your life. Yeah. You know, so it's happy, you know. I don't get to see much of it. I'm running around backstage mm -hmm. as a cruise director, but um, it feels so big inside your heart. You know? mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's been great. Thank you for it. It's been a great thing for the community. And, yeah, and people you. who are thinking about doing a festival should check out that, that page on your website. Mm -hmm. I, I think that'll be helpful to lots. Uh, one thing I wanted to ask you before we wrap up, um, you know, you wrote a lot about your love life in this book. Um, so I'm just curious, as someone who figured out early on that he's attracted to men, what challenges did you, f oh, yeah, I'm just wondering how you look back on challenges you faced in the 60s, 70s, and 80s compared to life now. Um, have you seen things evolve in a way? Does it really feel substantively different for you? So living a normal life as Rick I mean, Berlin. My friend Peter Barrett, who was in Orchestra Luna, who's no longer here, um, said, I'm going back in the closet I've had with all this out stuff, you know. <laughs> so I would say there are a couple of things. One is, I think if you have a cross to bear as a young person, whether it's your sexual identity or poverty or an abusive family, if you can get through that, it really deepens you as a person. And it also makes you more empathetic to those people who feel pain. I think if you have the silver spoon and you get hit with a sledgehammer in your 30s, you're, not, you're at sea. So I think it's a great gift. I, th I definitely have a homo sensibility, I think. At the same time, I think I'm an artist first. Mm -hmm. And I'm Rick first. Mm -hmm. And then the rest of it is interesting <laughs> and um and i i knew i think back when i was nine that i was attracted to guys but i 
suppressed it in public up until my job in Connecticut as a teacher. And I decided to tell all my friends, and they said, oh, we already knew that. You know, this wasn't, it's not a big secret. Mm. I mean, I had girlfriends, but not sexually, and they were wonderful people. But I'd never, I'd never had those, the feelings, not really who are you attracted to sexually. It's where, what inspires the, that incredible fire in the heart mm-hmm. when you fall mm-hmm. in love, you know? And um, it was always dudes, you know? Mm-hmm. I've loved lots of girls. I don't have many gay friends. You know, I have the friends I have. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I, at the point where a relationship is really not something I would want, I, my life is too um, selfish. Mm-hmm. And, and to change the rhythms of my life and the scheduling of my life for another person would be really interesting <laughs> to try and <laughs> do. A big challenge, no I, doubt. You know, I think my, the thing that I say is that I've known enormous love and received enormous love from people that I love. So I don't really need to get that anymore, and even though there are glimpses of it at all times. So I say my band or my, is my boyfriend, or I say um, I have, there's no star on top of the tree, just a, little, just a lot of little lights, mm-hmm. and they all blink and go out. You know? And I haven't been obsessed or jealous for a really long time because of it. That's a good thing. Well, for people who are contemplating reading this book, The Paragraphs by Rick Berlin, there's a lot of really good advice about about this. I think there's a way you reflect on your life that I think is really useful in terms of relationships. And uh, and again, you're very honest about it. So I think it's, it's you, really Rob. instructive. Absolutely. I want to take it out now with a song that you suggested we include uh, in the podcast called I Think I'm Falling from the record you put out just last year, The Courage of the Lonely. Mm-hmm. Uh, so tell us what this song is all about. Well, it's that thing you were asking about before. It's um, I fall for the people that disturb me, you know, who are onto me, who can see through me, who can't be charmed, who are probably um, marginal or peripheral in some way. And... And so my ideal version of that is Arthur Rimbaud and uh, and Verlaine, their relationship, mm-hmm. and uh, and it was volatile, and it was powerful, and in some ways maybe the most explosive, significant experience in either of their lives. Mm-hmm. And so I meet those people, and I met this one kid at the Brendan Bean who came up and shook my hand. I'd never met him before. He was really attractive. And he said, I just really like the work you do and I really like your songs. And I, you know, and then I didn't see him for a really long time, but I wound up putting him in the video of that song. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. And he looks kind of like Rambo. And I had him do that. And at the same time, they kind of stiff arm me. You know, in other words, it's not a, it's a, it's a very compl- complicated, seductive interaction. Mm-hmm. And, um, and which losing and winning, there's no neither of those. It's just tension, and it, it gets also a really catchy song. It is really catchy. Yeah, <laughs> it's undeniable. So we'll listen to a little bit of this as we're going out. Rick Berlin, thanks so much. Thank you, Rob. I always go for the Rambo kid with the disturbed hair and the cane, fearless and challenging everything in sight. Chase what's in the box, I 
about his work at berlinrick.com and buy his music on Bandcamp. And next September, try to work Jamaica Plain into your itinerary. You can hit some of the fine establishments that came up in this conversation and also catch the Jamaica Plain Music Festival managed by Rick Berlin and a host of locals. This episode was edited and mixed by Isaac Kotecki. Matt Jensen composed and recorded your theme music. Please subscribe to The Media Narrative at themedianarrative.com. I'm Rob Hoschel. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you.